I will skip most of the introduction here because many of you know about us. We are CSP, 17th year. Thank you for your support. Um, please turn off your cell phones. You've been very good. We have not had once, have we had a cell phone go off in the middle of your program? No, no cell phone. Um, this is a very special series. It's born out of uh, many things. I would say lately we've taken an interest in both, um, well, and particularly in American Jewish history. And we've had two CSP trips, uh, two out of three of our trilogy, completely different explorations of New York as being the origins of American Judaism. And we were very fortunate to have Rabbi Mintz as one of our speakers, twice already, which is very rare because the programs were like 99% different other than Rabbi Mintz. But he gave a different speech each time, so I think that. Um, and um, uh, it, we coalesce here because Rabbi Mintz's interest is American Jewish history. You said you have, you have a PhD? That's PhD. not in here. PhD from some little school called NYU. It's not even in your materials. Um, and uh, so what we've been learning about this week is really the origin story of American Judaism through the creation of the three main original um, rabbinical academies. And you have to be careful because we have so many more now, right? Can anybody imagine how many more we have now? Maybe we'll talk, maybe you'll touch on them today. Um, and it's been a pleasure. We have been recording these. So if you missed the first two, um, this is a series, so it does connect. But this, it's standalone, but it does relate to the first two. I'm sure we'll hear a little bit um, of the connection as well. So um, Rabbi Mintz, I will just go back to you, um, is a rabbi and founder of Kilat Reim Ahobim, a modern Orthodox synagogue in Manhattan. We've established they have a very good kiddish, Karen. So if you're in New York with the kids, you go there, and it's a Fleshik Kiddush with uh, Choland. Every Shabbos? Every Shabbos. Not during the 10 days. This Shabbos. No, even the, no, even before Tisha B'Av. Shabbos is allowed. Oh, okay. Always allowed. Well, then I think that uh, Max Ginsburg will be there. I'm very sure he will be there. And the elevator can make us two, remember? Okay, fine. Yeah. Fine. He's an adjunct associate professor of Jewish studies at City College of New York and a member of the Talmud faculty get this, Karen, at Jibat Maharat. So um, our topic for today is, what's our topic? I know it has, I know it has, I, I, but you know I tinkered around with your topics. You saw how I played with them, right? So um, to, to tell you what we did, we did the first and oldest Jewish seminary in America, Hebrew Union College. Then we did Tradition and Change last night, Jewish Theological Seminary. Today's Torah Umada, um, Yeshiva University. So please join me in welcoming Rabbi Adam Mintz for your final program in Orange County. This thank you, everyone. Um, thank you, everybody, for coming out tonight. Um, thank you for, um, for inviting me, Ari, to um, join you here in Orange County, and for everyone for welcoming Sharon and myself. I apologize, Sharon will be here in a minute. You know, as wonderful as it is here in Orange County, unfortunately, we have to go back. And when you have to go back from LAX to New York, it always means, or very often means, flight trouble. So we have some flight trouble. And there's a shul, and as Ari said, there's a Chulin Kiddush waiting for us. And I'm afraid, I don't know what's going to be with that Chulin Kiddush if the flight doesn't work out. So Sharon will be in here in a minute. Um, she's trying to work out our flight trouble. But um, on behalf of Sharon, I want to thank everybody. And I want to thank Ari. We met Ari. Um, there's a wonderful um, Shadchan in New York, Charlie, who, um, who shares many things with Ari, including a, um, including a love of the Boston Red Sox, which doesn't go over so well. Ari, you know, the, Ari, you know, the best thing that happened today in New York is that the Red Sox didn't play. Right. <laughs> Apparently, 
the, Yan the Yankees won and the Red Sox didn't play. A good day in New York. But um, thank you to Ari. It's really been a treat. It was a treat to meet you, um, you and your group when you came the two times that you came to the JCC on the west side. It really was a highlight of our year to be able to have Shabbat lunch together with you and to be able to talk to you a little bit about um, orthodoxy or Judaism on the Upper West Side and the Eruv and all the things that I talked about. But here, this week, we've really had an exploration or we've, you know, we, we've gone on a journey together. The journey is really a journey into the history of American Judaism because the rabbinical schools, whether we like to admit it or not, really created the American Judaism that we have today. Like Ari mentioned, in the 21st century, things are a little more complicated. It's not all top-down, now it's more bottom-up. So now the movements, the denominations, the schools aren't all, all, aren't all created from the top from the rabbis, but some from the bottom-up. We'll talk about that at the end. But what we did was we started with Hebrew Union College, with, um, with the reform movement, but with the school that at least its founder believed was going to be the rabbinical school, the American rabbinical school. A few clams, a little bit of ice cream after the main meat course in 1883 kind of stamped the, you know, the, 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 the envelope shut or the door shut on that dream. And that Trefa banquet led to the creation of JTS, and that's what we studied last night. The, the attempt of JTS, of the conservative movement, to create that middle road between the reform on the left, on the left, sorry, which they believed had really, um, ha had abandoned Judaism the way we know it. The orthodoxy, which was, you know, which was kind of for the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, which was an Eastern European orthodoxy that they thought was no longer relevant in the United States. And what we did last night was try to see whether or not JTS was successful in carving out that middle road and some of the ups and downs and the challenges that, um, you know, that take JTS into the 21st century. And now, tonight, we talk about Yeshiva University. And as we're going to talk about Yeshiva University, we're going to talk as well about Yeshiva University's relationship to JTS and even to HUC. See, that's kind of interesting. Today, when the rabbinical seminaries talk about their challenges, you're not going to hear from any of the seminaries. You know, um, HUC is not going to say, we need to do this because if we don't do this, you know, JTS is going gonna, is gonna to take our, you know, is going gonna, is gonna to have more students or more success. And JTS is not worried about YU and YU is not worried about JTS because now the denominations, at least Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform, are pretty well established and there's, there's little overlap, means an Orthodox rabbi is not conservative, a conservative rabbi is not reform, and, you know, in the, in the other direction as well. I know that's an over, you're saying, that's an oversimplification, but at least, let me, let me say that better then, at least in the rabbinical seminaries, the rabbinical seminaries don't really overlap. So, rather than talk about generalities, 
let's talk about the history of Yeshiva University. And when we talk about Yeshiva University, we begin with the history of what we today call REITS. REITS is the abbreviation for the Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Rabbinical Seminary. REITS. You say, that's not right. <laughs> Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary. I went to YU. We never use the word theological. <laughs> but we'll talk about where that comes from as well. Just a little bit. We'll get there. We'll get there. Just a little bit of background. In 1887, the Eitzchayim School is opened on the Lower East Side. The Eitzchayim School is a school for young boys ages 9 to 15. And it was, as their, you know, as one of the newspapers said, it was a school open to educate the poor children in Talmud, Bible, and the codes. The day went from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. in which they studied Bible, the Talmud, and the codes. From 4 to 6, well, they had one hour of English and one hour of writing. That was Yiddish writing. The English class was taught by a boy of 14, right? He knew English better than everybody else there, so he was the one who taught the class. Now, it was from that school that Reitz was created in 1897. There actually is a wonderful history of Yeshiva University written by Rabbi Gilbert Clapperman, who for many, many years was a rabbi um, in, um, in Long Island, in Lawrence, Long Island. And he has some great documents. So here, just look at the first page. We have a, the, the, the document that accompanied the incorporation of Reitz in 1897. Page 49. Congregation Anshe MS of Mariampol at 44 East Broadway on the Lower East Side announces that just as the Yeshiva Eitzchayim and the Machzikei Torah Talmud Torah were organized in the synagogue years ago, so too the Yeshiva of the Great Gon, Rabbi Isaac Elchanan, I'll explain that in a minute, may his memory be a blessing, is being organized now. The purpose of the Yeshiva is to enroll children who can study a page of Talmud with Tosfot. A daily shear will be taught by a Rosh Yeshiva, teacher of advanced Talmudic subjects. And a teacher will give instruction in the language of the land. That's English. The founder of the Yeshiva is Rabbi Yehuda David Bernstein, the founder of Yeshivas Eitzchayim. So what do you see here? What's the purpose of the school? The purpose of the school is to basically teach these young boys, and we'll see how young these boys actually are, was to teach these young boys to be able to study Talmud. And at the end, to be able to read, to speak English. That seems to be the purpose of this school. Very broad, very general, non-specific. Almost sounds like they weren't quite sure what the niche would be, right? Hebrew Union College knew. JTS knew. REIT seems to be very general. We'll come back there in a minute. Let's start with the founder 
What does he say? Rabbi Yehuda David Bernstein is the founder of the yeshiva. Who is Rabbi Yehuda David Bernstein? Rabbi Yehuda David Bernstein was an emigre, an emigre to the United States from Lithuania. We'll see that Reitz is very much Lithuanian. He tried to make a living in business when he came to New York, and he failed. Then he became a mashkiach, the rabbinic, you know, kosher supervisor in the local kosher winery. But that didn't make enough money. And therefore, he founded Reitz. Now, that doesn't mean that he wasn't a scholar. That just tells you that there were scholars who, when they came to the United States, there was no yeshiva for them to be scholars in. So therefore, they went into business. And in a sense, he kind of returned to where he was more comfortable, and he founds the yeshiva. Eighteen students are there in 1897 when Reitz begins. Eighteen students. That's pretty good. But you have to remember something. He, HUC begins in Cincinnati. You know, you really have to want to go to Cincinnati to study to become a rabbi. I know I told you that Cincinnati was an important city in the late 1800s. I know all of that. But the bottom line is you still have to go to Cincinnati to become a rabbi. Even JTS, their, you know, their clientele wasn't, it wasn't clear who their clientele was exactly. Kind of, you know, Americanized, Orthodox, that was, that was a group that was just beginning. For Reitz, the clientele was very clear. It was the Eastern European families that had immigrated to the United States that lived on the Lower East Side. By 1924, there were over 2 million of those people. The fact that they had 18 students is not surprising, right? It was a yeshiva. It was a nice place to be. By 1903, there were between 65 and 70 students. How old are they? They're between 18 and 30 years old. It seems like... The younger students went to Eitz Chaim, and then when they graduated Eitz Chaim, somewhere around the year 15, 16, 17, a group continued in the rabbinical school. Now, two points about going to rabbinical school in the early 20th century. Number one, why is it called Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary? What, who's Rabbi Isaac Elchanan? Does anybody know? Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Specter was the leading rabbi in Lithuania. He died at the e in the 1890s, around the year 1895. So they named the school after Rabbi Yitzchak Elchanan. That was very important to them because by naming the school after Rabbi Yitzchak Elchanan, you know what they did? They created a chain of continuity from Lithuania to the Lower East Side. And that was hugely important to them because the chain of, of tradition that the Orthodox believed in, that was a chain that linked itself back to Eastern Europe, to Lithuania. And in a sense, by calling the school after Rabbi Yitzchak Ochanan Specter, they were continuing that chain even in the United States. So the name is important. But what about the student body? I mean, 
in those days, did these students go to college? They graduate Eitz Chaim at 15, and 65 to 70 of them continue on in REITs. Let's say they continue on for three to five years in REITs. Were they also going to college? No, they were not. Why were they going to REITs? What did they think that REITs was going to accomplish for them? What did they think, everybody? They were going to become scholars. Who was going to pay the bills? The wife. Okay, no, no I'm, I'm listening, I'm listening. So what they, say, what they said means it was an old-fashioned kind of, kind of arrangement, which is they were going to be the rabbis, they were going to be the scholars, the wives were going to go to work, and that was going to be fine. Okay, any other thoughts? Yes. Sorry? They went part-time. Good. They went part-time. What were they doing the rest of the time? They were working. Good. That's very important. It, I'm not saying that it was impossible that they had the old-fashioned model. The problem was, let's be honest, where are the women going to find jobs, right? This wasn't, the, this wasn't the shtetl in Eastern Europe where, you know, the women, you know, where, you know they, they could have a store. They could, you know, there were a million people fighting for every job on the Lower East Side. It was very difficult to get a job on the Lower East Side. That's right. They were going part-time. They were working, but they wanted to continue their rabbinic studies. Probably not, and we'll see this in a second, probably not to be rabbis. It wasn't a good profession. We could argue whether it's a good profession today. But in 1903, the rabbinate was not really a good profession. Just to go back, last night I talked a little bit about my great-grandfather who came here in 1890. My grandfather, who um, was born in um, the United States in 1898, he went to Reitz. He went to Reitz, he got his rabbinical ordination in 1923-24. Now, what's interesting is, when he got his smicha, he became a rabbi, he was single, he became a rabbi in Ottawa for a year or two. Actually, someone connected him to a family in Quebec City, and my grandmother was the daughter of that, of that family, and so they got married. And I don't know exactly what my grandmother's role in this was, but they moved from the metropolis of Ottawa to the metropolis of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where they were. You're from, you're from Milwaukee? Oh, that's great. Okay. So they, they, they moved to Milwaukee, and then in 1928, they moved to Flatbush, to Brooklyn, and my grandfather was a rabbi in Flatbush from 1928 to 1983 when he passed away. But the interesting thing, the Flatbush part is interesting for, again, for another series about kind of, you know, you know um, the, the kind of the, the Judaism as it developed between the wars. But I'm interested in something else. 1923, you have a rabbi 
who gets his rabbinical ordination, who also had a degree from City College. That's important. He, as you said exactly correctly, and that is that he had gone part-time to Reitz and he had gone part-time to City College. Exactly, you know, when I, I knew him very well, but I wasn't sophisticated enough to ask the good questions. The good question would have been like, how'd you do that exactly? But somehow he came out in 1923 with a, um, you know, with a, with a college degree, with a BA from City College, and with his rabbinical ordination from Reitz. What's interesting is that by 1923, moving to Ottawa wasn't so strange. Now, I'm not saying that everybody did that, but it was, you know, that was the beginning of having the rabbinate as a profession. That's what he wanted to do. And that's where he got a job, and that's where he traveled, and that's where he met my grandmother. And then they went to Milwaukee. My father was born in Milwaukee, and then they come to Brooklyn. I mean, that was what happened. But you're right. In 1903, that's not what happened, right? 1903, there are no jobs because there's not enough money in Ottawa or in Milwaukee to, or even probably in Flatbush to pay for a rabbi. They couldn't afford to pay for a rabbi. So they continued their studies, but at the same time, they had to be able to get a job. They had to work. They had to go to school. They had to work, and they had to become Americanized on some level. Now, what was the curriculum? The curriculum was Talmud all day long very traditional. The founders did not keep their word. There was no secular studies. And at least in the beginning, the students were not allowed to go to college. If they went to college, if they snuck out and they went to City College, the college they would have gone to would have been City College. The, if they snuck out and they went to City College, they were thrown out of reach. In 1904, 1905, that's interesting, isn't it? Why? We'll get there. In 1904, 1905, there was was pressure to teach a class in English from the students. And an 18-year-old high school graduate teaches English. And really what you have here is a tension between the students and the teachers. The teachers represent the first generation of immigrants to the United States. Eastern European, Lithuanians, they're the ones who want to continue the tradition of Rabbi Yitzchak Elchanan, Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Specter, even here in the United States. Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Specter didn't study English. He didn't even study Lithuanian. They only spoke Yiddish in the yeshiva in Kovna, where Rabbi Yitzchak Elchanan was the head rabbi. They wanted to continue that tradition. They wanted to fight the Americanization of these Eastern European children, of the children of these Eastern European Jews. And they believed that the purpose of REITs was, they didn't say this, but I'm telling you, is to educate them in a traditional way and to make sure that they don't become too American because that was bad. So if JTS wants to Americanize them with a tradition, you know, Americanize the rabbinical students with a traditional Jewish education, Reitz specifically does not want to do that. 1907, three students break the rules. They don't go to City College, much worse. They go to meet with Solomon Schechter about transferring 
to JTS. You can imagine what happened then, right? So already, you see in here, this is, you know, we say it with a smile, but this is serious. It's one thing when the students, you know, disagree with the policy of the school. Okay, that's, you know, the founders believe, the rabbis believe, that was their job to, you know, to, to lay down the law. This is the policy of the school. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry. And they figure they'll just continue. And they'll, you know, and, and basically the teachers will win, like teachers sometimes naively think, right? But when they start threatening to go to the opponent, right? When they start threatening to go to JTS, then there's trouble. And in 1908, there is what they call the big strike in Reitz. In, in January of 1906, the board of directors, who really were the kind of the, 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 you know, the, 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 the mouthpieces of the rabbis, said that there were no secular studies that would be allowed. The penalty for being found taking courses, either officially in City College or privately, was that you would forfeit your, how much do they get a week, everybody? $4 a week. That's not bad. It's not bad. They got $4, okay? You keep that in mind when you go to YU, okay? They got $4 a week um, to go to rabbinical school. They would forfeit that. Now, the students went crazy. I mean, to be threatened and to lose their money because of that was unacceptable to the students. And here on page 95, on the next page, we have a, um, a statement of the student's position. On the bottom of page 95, we the students of REITs have for a long time hidden our wounds in order that no desecration should take place. But since it has come to this final step, we must publicize the following statement. It is known that there was a yeshiva in New York known as Yeshiva Asherbeinu Yitzchak Ochanan. The yeshiva was founded in order to produce great rabbinic scholars who would be acceptable to the people and know the language of the land. Unfortunately, however, the, the yeshiva does not fulfill its purpose. It is true that we have scholars who are brilliant Torah students who are suitable to leave or to lead orthodox synagogues, but we possess no secular education. When a young man comes to the yeshiva, he is assured that he will be given the best teachers. But after the young man is there for several months, he realizes that he lacks the opportunity to improve himself, and he begins to seek ways to leave the yeshiva. The yeshiva has already had the best of young men who were suitable to fill pulpits, but they were lost. They drifted with the stream because the yeshiva did not give them the opportunity to study the English language. A young man will not and cannot accept a position when he is ignorant and cannot even speak the language of the land. Amazing, right? We bore all this as long as we did not have to engage in battle with fanatics. Most of us found ways of acquiring our necessary studies in the preparatory school. Means if you want to study English, you figure out how to study English. But these fanatics who make up the board of directors and officers 
issued a decree against all secular studies. They demanded that we sign a document binding us to a strict discipline and failing that discipline, subjecting us to the penalty of losing our support. They were as good as their word. They have already refused us our stipends for two weeks. And then they go on a little bit. The directors are divided into two groups. One is strictly orthodox and will permit no study other than Talmud and codes. And the other, the more liberal, thinks that elementary school education is good enough. Therefore, since we have no other recourse, we must turn to the people who support this institution and place these questions before them. Should benighted people be directors of such an institution? Should the yeshiva provide more than an elementary school education? Should the young men who are great Talmudic scholars be swallowed up in the stream and lost to our Torah? Wow. Right? And they go on strike. What happens? Well, what's interesting is a description, and this um, Rabbi Clapperman in his book does a great job talking a little bit about what happened. So, 1908, there's a strike. Okay, 1908, there's a strike. What does that mean in English? That means that the students refuse to come to school. Now, if the students refuse to come to school, there is no school anymore. So, you know, at that point, they, you know, the, the, the directors and the rabbis are concerned because they're about to lose their school. What's going to happen? What's going to be? So we're looking here. Let's look at the next page, page 97. Towards the bottom of the page, following the presentation of their grievances, a series of demands signed by all the students of the yeshiva was issued, which evidenced clear and constructive thinking. We demand that there should be a systematized curriculum. The proper things should be taught at the right time. We demand the opportunities to study Hebrew, Jewish culture, and Jewish history. There should be a curriculum in the native land and general knowledge. There should be instruction in the art of public speaking. Our material should be so taken care of that we should not have to do every time that we need something. And the last and most important thing is that such a board of directors of fine religious Jews be elected that we will be able to hold in esteem and respect. They're really going after the board. We pray all Jews to whom the Torah and Judaism is dear to come to our help. Now, Look at the next page. In Jerusalem, we're talking about the Haredim on the Lower East Side. Okay, we'll get there. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So what do we have? We have the students very clearly saying what? We want a broad education. Sounds, for those people who were here last night, sounds very similar to the curriculum of what? Of JTS. That wasn't missed. Look at the next page, the top of the next page, 102. Putting aside the Cincinnati Reform Factory, there remains the competition between Schechter's Rabbinical School and Reitz. Schechter's Seminary, according to the intent of the founders and supporters of Reitz, is Jewish, but not religious. And here we come to the conflict of the yeshiva students and the leader of Reitz. We want, claim the students, to know Talmud and codes 
better than the students of Schechter Seminary. We want to know all the material that the rabbis of Russia do. But we want to have as much secular education as the students of Schechter Seminary. We cannot be satisfied with the bit of English that the administration permits us to study. Now there is a very interesting paragraph. What do the student wa students want? They want to be better rabbinical students than the JTS students. But they want as much secular studies as JTS has, right? Means to say that they thought that JTS was kind of Talmud light, but they thought they were better in terms of secular studies. And now I'm continuing to read. And the administration thinks this way, a rabbi is neither uh, obligated to study nor requires too much secular knowledge. Too much secular learning conflicts with Judaism. It is quite sufficient for a rabbi to be able to talk English and to be able to answer in English. The institution that wants to compete with the rabbinical school of Professor Schechter cannot win by giving its students less training. This was the newspaper commenting. The yeshiva may be Jewish, religious, orthodox, but that does not imply that the students must be backwards. Being backward is not an essential of Judaism. It is also not necessary that a rabbinical school should not have a clear program of studies. Judaism has no fear of the light of culture. The defenders of Judaism were never ignorant. Maimonides in his philosophical knowledge, Judah Halevi in his philosophy and medicine, the Vilnagon in his science and mathematics, these were the representatives of Judaism. Open the windows, give more light to those whom you wish to place at the head of American Jewry. Those who are behind the times can never stand at the head of a movement. They will never be leaders. Wow. So what do we have? We have tremendous pressure on the directors and the rabbis of REITs to basically to introduce secular studies, right? More than just the hour a, a day, which never really happened, right? By the way, what was the language of the Talmud, um, you know, the Talmud classes? No. Aramaic, the language of the Talmud is Aramaic. The language of instruction was all Yiddish. The teachers, by and large, did not speak any English at all. They thought there was no need to study English. Studying English was only going to be, was introducing the people to the evils of America. But the students said, enough is enough. And the students clearly here, we have the, you know, the threat or the competition between JTS, what they refer to as Schechter Seminary. That in itself is pejorative, right? <laughs> Schechter Seminary, they referred to it, and REITs. What happens? What happens? Well, what happens, you know, these, it's not going to surprise you that these things are not resolved overnight. Actually, it takes until 1915 to resolve the issue. The strike was over. They came back. You know, that's easy. They gave them the $4 a week, and they <laughs> came back. 
1915, Bernard Revel is selected to be the head, what became known as the president of REITs. Bernard Revel was educated in Kovna. Hey, Kovna, that's where Rabbi Isaac Elkan Inspector came from. Perfect. The chain of tradition, the chain of REITs is continuing. He received the very first PhD given by Dropsy College. He wrote about Karait Halacha. Okay? His dissertation is still available if you're interested, also for another topic. Now, and then he came to study in REITs. So he was, he was an alum. He was a rabbi from REITs, which also was good, right? He was part of the, part of the family. And a part, a piece of the picture, which is not to be overlooked, is that he married into a prominent and extremely wealthy oil family in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So he also brought with him not only the ability to fundraise, but the ability to what? Bankroll the institution. But what is Bernard Revel, Rabbi Dr. Bernard Revel, what does he bring to yeshiva? Why is that a resolution? Well, actually, that is a concession to the students. Yeshiva reads is no longer going to be run by what the students called the backward directors, the directors who didn't want any secular education, who thought that an hour a day of English is enough. The, the head of the yeshiva, the president, is now someone who can claim to be a, a direct line, a direct line to the chain of Rabbi Isaac Elchan Inspector, but at the same time, someone who's achieved the highest level of um, academic um, education by receiving a PhD. This really turned around REITs forever. His first project, interestingly enough, was the establishment of a high school that would teach secular studies officially. You see, he couldn't quite you know, introduce secular studies in the yeshiva yet, but he did introduce secular studies into a high school. It began in September of 1916, and actually this year, September 2017, the high school of Yeshiva University, they call it MTA, Manhattan Talmudic Academy, is beginning its second century. It's still the Yeshiva University High School. I don't know how many students and how many teachers in MTA know that they were the first project of, of, of Bernard Revel to introduce secular studies. That was the way he did it, by doing it in the high school, and only then we'll see did it affect the university. Now, what happened? So what you have is, oh, let me just tell you that of those 20 young men who began the high school in 1916, six graduated. Two became rabbis, two became businessmen, one became a lawyer, and one became a physician. That's success, right? That's, you know, that's good success for Yeshiva University. Now, on Sunday, December 2nd, 1923, the day before Hanukkah, 1923, 16 young men received their rabbinical ordination 
from wreaths. The ceremony took place at the premier Orthodox synagogue on the Upper East Side. They call it um, Congregation um, Kehilat Jeshurun, KJ they call it. And the main address was delivered by Rabbi Herbert S. Goldstein. Rabbi Herbert S. Goldstein was a rabbi, a prominent rabbi in Manhattan, a graduate, a rabbi from Reitz. He was the son-in-law of Harry Fischel. Harry Fischel was the leading orthodox philanthropist in New York at the time. And Rabbi Herbert S. Goldstein announces to the packed congregation that he has some good news. Reitz is going to introduce a four-year liberal arts college together with the yeshiva. Reitz is going to be combined with yeshiva college. And they were going to undergo a $5 million campaign for a new building, a building that they were going to buy on Amsterdam Avenue between 186th Street and 187th Street. We know the punchline. Obviously, that campaign was successful because they're still in that building. That building uh, was purchased for $1,274,960. I do not know how much that building is worth today. But in order to raise money, Reitz slash now Yeshiva College held a concert at the old Madison Square Garden. Those New Yorkers here know that the Madison Square Garden of today, I know it's the Knicks and the Rangers, but the Madison Square Garden of today is not in Madison Square Park. Madison Square Park is on Madison Avenue and um, around 23rd Street, 25th Street. That used to be where Madison Square Garden was, and then when it moved, it kept the name, even though it's no longer Madison Square Park. In May 23rd, 1926, in the original Madison Square Garden, 12,000 people attended a four-hour Jewish music concert. In those days, Jewish music didn't mean Mordechai ben David and, uh, and, 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 and Avram Fried and I don't know who else they have, right? It meant cantors. It meant chazanim. Who was the greatest cantor of the time? Who was the greatest cantor of the time, the 1920s, everybody? Who's a cantor fan? Yasla Rosenblatt, thank you very much. Yasla Rosenblatt. They paid money to hear Yasla Rosenblatt. He was a great cantor. He was an opera star. He was a great celebrity, Yasla Rosenblatt. The, the seats cost between $2.50 and $5,000. Mendel Gottesman, who was the philanthropist after whom the library at Yeshiva University is named, it's still called the Gottesman Library, he paid $50,000 for nine box seats. I don't know, Ari, whether that would get you into Gillette Stadium, but it's not bad for 1926. Oh, here you go. Forget the Patriots. Here we go. Now, so here you go. So it looks like they have a lot of energy, and it looks like, you know, it looks like it's going to happen. Now, 
there's opposition. Now, this is kind of almost amusing. Who's the opposition from? Well, the opposition, and we'll talk more about this in a second, is from the secularists who just don't like the orthodox. They don't want the orthodox to be successful. So if the orthodox are able to buy this building and have this institution, that's going to be bad. There was opposition for what you would call the doubters. We all know, anybody who goes into fundraising knows, there are the doubters, the people who don't trust us. I don't know why they think that way, but, you know, they doubt us. Um, and there were those who thought that a Jewish university was bad, right? That's interesting. Even within the movement, they were thought that that was a bad precedent, that, you know, to kind of create a, se a segregated Jewish college was problematic. And then there was the editorial in the Jewish newspaper. Tens of thousands of hungry die in the Ukraine, and $5 million is raised to buy a building for the yeshiva in New York. <laughs> now, you know that argument as well. Just to give you a sense of some of the opposition, Louis Marshall was maybe the most important Jewish leader Jewish meaning not orthodox, but Jewish leader of the time. He was the head of the American Jewish Committee. He was the president of Temple Emmanuel, the Reform Temple. And he was a chairman of the board of JTS. And he thought that American rabbinical students needed to be educated at an American secular university. He did not give one penny to the capital campaign of Yeshiva College to buy the building. So in addition, the reason I say, right, the reason I, you know, the reason that I, you know, that I kind of said we say this with a smile is I understand the opposition from the right. I know that the rabbis, that the first generation Eastern Europeaners, I know they were opposed to this whole project. But what's interesting is that once they introduce the project, there's pushback from the other side as well. And now, just a breath, just a moment. Where are we now? We're now in the 1920s. Okay, we're now in the 1920s. The building um, was purchased, and Yeshiva College began in 1926, 1927. By 1926-1927, that first generation of Eastern European immigrants to this country, the generation of immigrants that never learned how to speak English, they may still have been alive, but they weren't the factor that they were 10 or 15 years earlier. They were no longer controlling, they were no longer leading the conversation of orthodoxy. By then, it was the Bernard Revels who were controlling the conversation. By then, it was the great rabbinic scholars who had studied in Eastern Europe and come here but became Americanized and got PhDs. They were the ones who were leading the conversation. So you talk about the fact that, you know, could this ever have happened in 1908 during the big strike? Can you imagine how they announced the founding of Yeshiva College? Not a chance. But it's not so much or not at all that the, op that the opponents of 1908 felt differently in 1926. I'm sure they didn't. 
But the opponents of 1908, they were no longer the leadership in 1926. The next generation was a completely different generation. That's so interesting. But of course, you know, in those years when YU, what I'm calling YU, they only became a university in the 50s. There now is a medical school, and there's a law school, and there's a social work school, and a school of education. It later became a university. So if I call it YU instead of Yeshiva College, we know from 1926 on it's, it's, it's Yeshiva College, and in the 50s it becomes Yeshiva University. But as REITs, Yeshiva College, is attempting to raise this money to buy the building, JTS is also trying to buy a building on 122nd Street. We know that building also. And, you know, when you try to raise money, and it's always difficult, even if you do well raising money, it's difficult. There was a movement among both JTS and REITs supporters. Why do we have to bother? Why don't we just create one institution. And it seems, for reasons that are not entirely clear and it doesn't matter, that the building in Washington Heights was considered to be a, a, a more preferred building and location, which is kind of funny because 122nd Street is a better location these days. But whatever it is, right, um, they, so the, the, the heads of JTS, and here I mean the lay heads of JTS, they actually went to Washington Heights to look at the building. And there was a discussion, there was a discussion about a potential merger between Yeshiva College and JTS. Meaning, um, the first, well, I can't remember what day it is, right? Um, on two, that's a good sign, right? On Tuesday, that's, that means we're, we're away from home. On Tuesday night when we talked about HUC, we talked about the fact that there was, you know, that there were eventually was a merger between HUC and the Jewish Institute of, of Religion. Because it's hard for, you know, for two institutions to, you know, to coexist, and therefore they eventually merged. So it almost makes sense that now that both institutions, REITs and JTS, want to move to the next level and to raise a lot of money, you know, that at least there'll be a discussion about a potential merger. Um, there was an article written that um, in the about 25 years ago that collected some of the letters that were written back and forth during this period. It would be like collecting the emails today. <laughs> and I just want to read a little bit of, you know, of the material that was, you know, that, that went back and forth. The president of JTS, this is just we need to identify for a minute. The president of JTS was someone of the name of Cyrus Adler. He's an Orthodox Jew who is committed to Orthodoxy, but at the same time committed to JTS. And on page 268, left-hand side, copy it says, March 15th, 1926. You see where I am? Page 268. Dear Dr. Adler, at the meeting yesterday, I did not care to explain in detail for the reason, my, for in detail my reasons, for being absolutely convinced that the proposed union between the seminary and the yeshiva will never be consummated. 
I therefore consider it my duty to point out to you those things which will make impossible the union of the two institutions. I happen to be in constant touch with the leaders of the yeshiva group, and things are said to me which are never presented either to you, Mr. Marshall, to you, Mr. Marshall, or Judge Rosalski. Let me enumerate the differences. Curriculum. The yeshiva group would insist upon a curriculum which would grant of a hatarat um, hauraah, traditional ordination granted for proficiency in the codes and the ability to decide ritual questions to each graduate. Such a curriculum would mean that in the future, men of the type of Jacob Cohn, Israel Goldstein, Norman Sallet, and Elias Solomon will be kept out of the ministry. You can see on the bottom there, those were rabbis who were not proficient in the codes, okay? Personally, with all my desire to see an American clergy that is able to decide ritual questions, I would any day prefer Jacob Cohn to T.S., okay? And he goes on to say who that is, right? says, T.S. was a European-trained Talmudist who graduated from the seminary, which means that, you know, what he's saying is, come on, you know, it's nice to be proficient in the codes. Yeah, you can hear someone today saying that. But I would, I would choose a good rabbi, ra a rabbi who knows how to deliver a sermon, a rabbi who's a good pastor. I would choose those people over, um, you know, over someone who knows how to decide ritual matters in a second. Number two, the yeshiva group not only objects to our present curriculum, but to the method of instruction. It is unalterably un opposed to the historical method in teaching the Talmud and to any critical methods in interpreting the Bible. Even Professor Hoshander's conservative view is traitor to them. I do not know how we can recede from our conviction on this point. Right? They don't believe that you look at the Talmud as a historical document. They see the Talmud as being totally ahistorical. Three. The yeshiva group is unalterably opposed to sending rabbis to any but strictly orthodox congregations. This would mean the breaking of relations with those synagogues which are today the backbone of United Synagogue. No mechitza. Four, the yeshiva group considers the Teachers Institute a citadel of atheism because it is headed by Professor Mordechai Kaplan, who was the founder of the Reconstructionist movement. Under no condition will they countenance a union with the seminary as long as he is retained on the faculty. Wow. I have spoken to the most liberal-minded of the group, and they tell me that this is the crux of the entire problem. Can we afford to have Kaplan again brought up for discussion? And are we ready to eliminate him? He was the most important rabbi of the conservative movement. Um, there will be opposition, next page, from those who are opposed to women as teachers. Granting that these objections could be met, Knowing as I do the caliber of this group, I am convinced that even if the union is affected, a theological school will still be conducted by the discontented. The result will therefore be that we will be saddled with the burden of the yeshiva without eliminating the competition of a rival school. You see, what he says is, it's not going to work, right? That's all. He has all the things. That he says, it's not going to work because the Orthodox aren't going to be satisfied and therefore they're going to have a breakaway. So therefore we're going to merge and there's still going to be an Orthodox school. So what did we accomplish? So we'll compromise and we accomplish nothing. As to the yeshiva itself, there are very serious financial problems. In the first place, the funds for the building were obtained on the understanding that a college course will be given. To abandon his college course would necessitate, if they desire to be honest, the offer to return all money subscribed on that understanding. Secondly, I consider absolutely wrong to board and lodge boys who want to receive a high school training. 
The community should not be saddled with the burden of maintaining boys who intend to enter law, medicine, or some profession other than the ministry. I therefore do not see why we should undertake the continence of the budget for the high school. I should only be too happy to meet you at any time to give you a more detailed explanation of the points I have touched on, and especially the views of the yeshiva group on the question of a faculty for this combined theological school. Now, that's all really interesting. The last point is fascinating, and I think that's really at the, in the, at the, you know, at the foundation of the issue. And that is, what does he say? I don't think we should support the high school because I don't think we should support young boys who are going to go into law and medicine and accounting and everything else. Now, we said that the when the high school began, they were very proud of the fact that two became rabbis and one became a businessman and one became a lawyer and one became a doctor. Right there is a very fundamental difference between the philosophy of REITs and the philosophy of JTS. JTS trains rabbis, or at least at that time, it's solely trained rabbis. Now it's broader. But at that point, JTS trained rabbis. Why you trained the Orthodox community, not only rabbis. That's why they wanted a yeshiva college. JTS never had a college because JTS wanted you to go to a secular college, and if you weren't interested in being a rabbi, you went to a secular college, and you became a conservative Jew who would go to the synagogue of the rabbi who went to the secular college and then went to JTS. Why you didn't do that? What YU did was they wanted to educate generations of the Orthodox movement. Now, this isn't the time for this, but it is an interesting discussion to evaluate that philosophy. Leave aside JTS for a minute. YU has been very successful in educating generations of the Orthodox community. And actually... Modern orthodoxy, which we discussed last night a little bit, modern orthodoxy, which was basically orthodoxy that was open to education and to professions, but at least in the 1960s meant that you had separation between men and women during services. Modern orthodoxy was created in Yeshiva University because Yeshiva University didn't just train the rabbis, it also trained the laity. And Rabbi Dab in his um, Rabbi Drab, sorry, in his letter to Cyrus Adler, he understands that, and he opposes it. He said we shouldn't be funding that. Yeshiva believed that that needed to be funded. So that's our that's our story. It's not the, it's not the end yet, okay? But that's our story. Our story is the founding of Yeshiva, a founding of a school that to basically maintain the line of tradition from Kovna to the Lower East Side. That didn't go. Actually, that didn't go because the, you know, the ideology that led to the creation of Schechter Seminary, of JTS, was actually the ideology that was more alive in Orthodox America, in American Orthodoxy, than the old-fashioned view of yeshiva. And therefore, what happened was that REITs was forced, basically, to embrace the American ideology of JTS. 
Now, sure, they wanted to teach the codes in the Talmud better than JTS, but the ideology, the ideology of combining um, Torah, Talmud, together with secular education, that became the ideology of Reitz. How do I know that they shared an ideology? I know they shared an ideology because the letter that I just read, the reasons for the fact that they couldn't merge, you know, it was really on details, right? They couldn't merge because, you know, some of the rabbis of JTS would be left out and because they didn't get along with Mordecai Kaplan because they called him a heretic. You know, you, one person calls him a heretic, one person doesn't call him a heretic. The reason they didn't merge was on details, but it, the basic philosophy, the ideology, was shared by the two of them. And that is so interesting because when we talk about the development of the denominations and the development of the rabbis, actually, HUC, the reform movement, was in its own camp. Reitz and JTS really shared the same bedroom, right? They really were the same. What happened was once they, the decision was made that they would not merge. So what happened was that JTS created the conservative movement as we know it, and YU went on to create the modern orthodox movement, and they, and they went over time, they went their separate ways. We know how they went their separate ways, but what's interesting is that they started sharing the same bedroom. But now, and here's the last point, and in each one of our, in each one of the lectures, I've concluded always with the discussion of women rabbis. Because that really identified the movement for what it was, right? The reform movement was very quick to, or, uh, to ordain women. Conservative movement, it tore the movement apart, but in the end of the day, they had no choice. And that's not where fair to say. They decided that the right thing to do was to ordain women. What happened with YU? You know, for the other two, I gave you, you know, source material, the discussion about whether or not to ordain women. You're welcome to, you know, to send me whatever source material you'll find. But to even to address the question would mean that it was a question that should be addressed. And to, to YU, they didn't believe that this was really um, an issue that should be addressed. This year, the OU, the Union of Orthodox Jewish Congregations, did come out with a lengthy letter in which several rabbis from YU claimed that it was against tradition to ordain women. But again, I mean, and that's an important document, again, a no whole other topic for a lecture, but that document was, did not come out of YU. That document came out of another organization. YU doesn't even entertain this possibility. So what happened? And here, and we've been talking from the beginning about kind of the fact that, you know, there are, there are new rabbinical seminaries. Last night we talked a little bit about Los Angeles, and we talked about um, Rabbi David Weiss-Halivni's um, institution. Within orthodoxy, 20 years ago, a graduate of Reitz, Rabbi Avi Weiss, a rabbi in Riverdale, began a rabbinical school called Chova Beitova. This rabbinical school was started to compete with Yeshiva University. 
compete with REITs. It was not a college. It was post-college. You can go anywhere you want. You, got into, you could go to Yeshiva College. And this rabbinical school was supposed to be, number one, more modern, to kind of react to the fact that he felt that REITs had become a little too more right-wing religiously, and also kind of to prepare rabbis better for the pulpit. Therefore, to, treat, to teach them as pastors, as psychologists, as speakers, those kinds of things. At the beginning, the um, Chobavei Torah was successful in attracting students who could have and might have gone to REITs. Over time, what happened was there really was a splitting of the ways and Chobavei Torah is still functioning and is successful in its own way, but it tends to attract a different type of rabbinical student than REITS does. REITS tends to attract, and again, this is all generalization, REITS tends to attract those who are studying to become pulpit rabbis, while Chobavei Torah tends to attract those who are kind of going to be more in the field in terms of chaplaincy work or, you know, or campus work or teaching work, kind of, a, kind of a, a, a more recent brand of the orthodox rabbinate, of the, of the rabbinate generally. Okay. So that's, um, you know, so that's Chobavei Torah. But eight years ago, Rabbi Avi Weiss began a school called Yeshivat Maharat in which he decided to ordain women rabbis as orthodox rabbis. He doesn't call them rabbis, he calls them maharat. It's also an interesting discussion. But that was also a reaction to the, to the fact that he believed that Reitz was not responding to the needs of the generation. And that the generation, generation was at a moment, even the Orthodox generation, was at a moment that women needed to be able to be given the opportunity to be ordained as to serve and to serve as rabbis. Now, Yeshivat Maharat continues to ordain women, but, you know, I'm a historian. They always say, I'm a historian, but not a prophet. I can't tell you what's going to be in the future for Yeshivat Maharat. Will it be successful? Will women Orthodox rabbis become the norm 10 or 20 years from now? I can't know. There's, it's impossible to know. But what I do know is that while in 1926 the question was um, about REITs and JTS, could they merge, should they merge, would they merge? Now, the issues are very much internal within the Orthodox community. And that's what's fascinating about Chobavei Torah and about Maharat. Chobavei Torah and Maharat were not established as fringe Orthodox institutions. They weren't established as institutions that were conservative somehow. Actually, I don't know who here reads the New York Jewish Week, but in today's Jewish Week, there's a long article saying that Chobavei Torah, which for many years liked to define itself as being 
open orthodox has dropped that term and now refers it to itself as being modern orthodox, just like Yeshiva University. Chovavei Torah and Maharat are in the same camp as Yeshiva University. The issues now, which are very much alive and very fascinating, are issues within the Orthodox community. And just to sum up the lectures, the evolution of the three, four, five, six, seven rabbinical schools have really developed in a way, in a sense, they kind of started from the same place. But as each movement is strengthened and has gained strength, each movement begins to try to define itself, not based on what the others think, but what we think of ourselves. And I hope and I believe that it's by based on an understanding of the past that'll help us all, in all our denominations, create a richer and better tomorrow. Thank you so much. Questions. Yes. Two questions. One, where are Reconstructionist rabbis <coughs> ordained? Second They're question is, do Haredi rabbis go to Yeshiva University, or is there? Do they have their? That's own a good question. All good questions. The an the answer is Reconstructionist rabbis are trained in the Reconstructionist school in Philadelphia. Haredim now have their own schools. The answer is no. They do not go to Yeshiva. <laughs> So when does the term modern orthodox come out? Modern orthodox comes out probably as a reaction to what you're calling the Haredi, which is also interesting. It's not a reaction to the conservative, it's a reaction to the Haredi. Yes? When I was much younger, growing up, the reform movement was way out over here, all yeah. along. Okay. The conservative and orthodox were really quite close together. I'm talking about the late 50s, early mid 60s. Right. where when I was working at Camp Ramah, we had Orthodox campers and staff coming to camp for the summer. Over time, now the reform and conservative movements are almost identical in many things. I know that every Orthodox rabbi in Orange County keeps kosher, which in the 50s and 60s was probably not true. The reform, Rabbinate in the Orange County yeah, all right. keep kosher today. I'm sure about it. I can verify it. Whereas today, the Orthodox and the, the Reform and Conservative are very close together, and the Orthodox tends to be over here. I personally, but I've been a Conservative Jew my whole life, I personally think that Conservative movement is on the brink of a split, where the Camp Ramah. I call the Camp Ramah facet will move closer to the modern Orthodox, who's moving away from the more Orthodox, and that that sort of will be uh, an alignment. Do you have any any response or any? I mean, you know, again, it's hard to know what's going to be. I'm, I won't write it down. Within, I won't, uh, very quickly, within the Reform movement, there definitely is a move back to tradition. Mm -hmm. 
a move back to Israel. Rabbi David Ellenson, who was the um, who was the chancellor of HUC, the president, I don't know what they called it, the president of HUC, um, really brought HUC back to tradition and very seriously back to Israel. That's for sure true. Though at the same time, there's a very strong movement within the reform movement, you know, in terms of patrilineal descent and intermarriage, you know, to kind of be more inclusive. So that's a very complicated topic. And within the conservative movement, of course, there are, you know, there are different types of conservative Jews. There is that movement of traditional um, you know, conservatism, or they like to call it non-denominationalism now, right? I mean, that's the Hadar phenomenon in New York, and you know, um, and community schools, which you, you know, which you're very much aware of in, you know, in, in California and in New York and many, many other places. So, you know, that's that's tricky. How you define those things, and I think you know that just like for Yeshivat Marat, it's hard to know what the future will, um, you know, will hold. But you're 100% right in, in terms of you know identifying a group, but obviously that's not the whole group. There's a much bigger group there. Yes. So, Rabbi, you talked over the last several days about three different institutions that played a very important role in kind of defining and really creating their respective movements. Do those institutions still have that power and influence to? change those or at least to or to support those movements today or they are that's a good question now that's a good question and the answer is no you know the answer is that the power of the rabbi is not what it used to be and that is you know and maybe that's generally so the power of authority is not what it used to be but leave that aside for a second the power of the rabbi is not what it used to you know, let's just talk. Someone said to me recently that the Orthodox don't go to shul anymore because they know how to pray. The conservative don't. The conservative reform don't go to shul anymore because they're not interested in prayer. Now, leave that aside. What that is, but you know, what what that means is, leave aside whether that's true or not true. But the point of that comment is that the movement is created by the people who don't come to pray. So the rabbi is delivering sermons to people who are not there at the pews. That's in addition to the fact that in the old days, the you know, you heard the rabbi on Saturday morning. That was the Judaism that you got for the week. If you want to know what the Jewish view of Charlottesville, of Barcelona, of you know, of, I don't know whatever else you know happened this week, you know what you would do in the old days? You'd go to shul on Shabbos morning because you wanted to know what the rabbi had to say. You don't need to go to shul on Shabbos morning this week because you know what the Jewish view is. I mean, you've read all the articles and you've read I mean, some very important things and all the blogs and all the things are out this week. And they're very, very important. I'm not downplaying how important they are. I'm just saying you don't need Shabbos morning anymore. The role of the rabbi is not the same. And therefore, you know, therefore, we, we I believe we have a challenge in defining these movements and in defining the role of the rabbi going forward. And I think that's very much a work in progress. So the short, able, the long answer to your short question is you're absolutely right. And the institutions do not have the ability to control the movements the way they're used to. Yes? When did the Yeshiva University switch from translating Talmud into Yiddish to Talmud into Rabbi Soloveitchik switched in 1961 because the students um, complained that they didn't know Yiddish. <laughs> yes. Um, how does YU relate uh, to the philosophy of Chabad and Lubavitch? 
I mean, they're both orthodox, but they don't really share. But they, but they don't share an ideology. Really. That's my question. Yeah, they don't share an ideology. I mean, they share orthodoxy, but you know, Chabad kind of has the ideology of kind of going out to the communities. Well, that's not the yeshiva university well, the, philosophy. They, they have the philosophy of the emotional relationship. Right. So, so yeshiva university is still academic. all these years later, all these years after Rabbi Yehuda and David Bernstein, um, they're still very authority. Which, which more academic, more academic, intellectual, and all of that. Yes. Question. The final question. No, I just wanted to comment that um, in the 1960s, a friend of ours in Los Angeles uh, sent their boys to quote a Jewish school. I have no idea what the name was, but they were learning Talmud in Yiddish. They they were American kids. The the Lakewood Yeshiva, they still learn Talmud in Yiddish. I am sure that there are places in Los Angeles where they learn Talmud in Yiddish. Absolutely. The Hasidim still speak Yiddish, right? In the Hasidic schools, they still speak, teach Talmud in Yiddish. In the non-Hasidic schools, there are some who teach, you know, but all that's going to change because, you know, now, the, you know, you, they still teach in Yiddish because there still are a handful of those who themselves study in Yiddish, whether they study in Yiddish, whether they're very old and they studied in Europe, or whether they're the children of that generation who were brought up in Yiddish because they're parents. But, you know, in, in 10 years from now, in 15 years from now, you're not going to have any of those people left. And therefore, English is going to be the language. So it doesn't pay to fight that battle, because that battle is going to be, you know, going to be one on its own. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.